Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 13 to 17 together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. You may be seated. And at this point in the service, we have something really exciting, and that's child dedication. So I'm going to invite up Pastor Mike and then also the Holt family and the Boucher family up here to the front. And I'll pass it over to you, Pastor Mike. All right. Thank you. Hello, everybody. By God's grace, he grants us children, beautiful, wonderful children. And Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake, stays awake in vain. It is vain to rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Hello, families. Looking good? All right. So uh, the Bible does not mandate what we're doing right now, but the Bible models parents trusting Christ and seeking God's blessing upon their family and resolving to preach the gospel uh, to themselves and to their kids and to distrust uh, God's providential orchestration of all things. That's the heart in which these families come today as they bring children to dedicate them to the Lord publicly. Really, it was what they're doing, publicly dedicating themselves to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we've got James and Rebecca Holt bringing Phineas Starkey and Ben and Anna Boucher bringing Nova J. Joy. So uh, both dads are going to share some scripture for their kids. So I'd like to read from 1 Corinthians 16, 13 to 14, and it's what we pray for Phineas and, and all of our boys. Uh, as Paul wrote here, he said, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Whoops. So I'm reading from uh, Jesse. Jesse's got me a book over here. I'm reading from Second Samuel, uh, chapter 22. Okay, uh, verse one says, "And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies, and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my rock, my." My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, 
my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Uh, and then further down, verse 31, uh, it says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge, and he has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. Uh, and he goes on. Uh, but this is our prayer for Novajay. Um, you know, these are, these are the words of David. This was a song of David. I think sometimes we lose sight that he was a singer. Uh, but he was a warrior. He was a husband. He was a father. Uh, and not perfect, uh, but a friend of God. And these are the words of God. Uh, and so we trust that you know, as Nova Jay is faithfully willing to take these on for herself mm -hmm. in her walk with God, that he will be true to his word in that way. So. All right. Praise God. Well, we're going to give you each Bibles. I know you have Bibles, but we're going to give you some Bibles for the kids as well. And we know you teach the word in your home and we encourage you to keep doing that, along with getting involved with uh, the fellowship of believers here and a good model for the rest of the families here. So let's pray. Let's pray for these beautiful kids. Lord, we thank you for moms and dads who serve you by trusting you and opening your word and praying with their children. And we thank you, Lord, for the church's part as well as we all have opportunity to encourage and, and mentor and as parents along with them to teach the word. And thank you, Lord, that we look to you. We, you are the giver of life. You the giver of eternal life, and we acknowledge your goodness, your grace, your mercy. We thank you for these children, all of them up here, and all the children you blessed us with, even at Grace, and we thank you for Phineas and Nova Jay. Thank you, Lord, that they're gifts from you, and you know them. And we pray, Lord, that you would open their hearts to the gospel at a young age. We pray that they would know you and love you and serve you with their whole heart for their whole life. That's our desire. We pray, Lord, according to the riches of your glory, that you would grant them one day to be strengthened with power through their spirit and their inner being, that one day that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith and that they would be rooted and grounded in love and may know the love of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would give James and Rebecca and Ben and Anna wisdom and strength and patience and humility and dependence on you as they shepherd their children in your ways and to continue to engage in the word in their home and pray together and disciple their kids and interact with the church and interact redemptively in the world we thank you lord that you are you are able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think and, and we pray all of this according to your power at work we pray that you would be received glory in your church and that you would be praised and honored and so we thank you for these young lives and pray your will to be done. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
We want to uh, just pray now briefly again for our morning, and also we want to pray for one of our missionaries as we do every week, and that's Rick Johnson. Lots of us know him. He serves faithfully in the juvenile detention centers uh, in Orange County here. So let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you so much for the blessing of children. We thank you that um, there are lots of children running around at Grace, and we just pray for your work in the lives of uh, the next generation, the kids and youth at this church, Lord, we pray that you would cause them to really come to a, a true knowledge of you, a saving knowledge of you, that they would actually walk with you and know you, and Lord, only you can do that by your spirit. And so we just, we ask that you would draw, um, draw the young people here to yourself, give them a deep experience of who you are, cause them to love your word, and Lord, we just, we thank you that you, in so many ways, are already at work in so many lives at Grace, and we praise you for that. Lord, we, um, we want to pray for Rick Johnson this morning, and we thank you for his ministry. We ask that you would um, encourage him and that you would use what he's doing to bear eternal fruit. Lord, pray that you would work in the hearts of the kids that he interacts with in the detention facilities, and Lord, even coming out of challenging backgrounds, that you would show them uh, the light of Christ, uh, that they would come to see your glory as it shines in the gospel. And Lord, we just pray for him, that you would continue to uh, comfort him in your love and encourage him in the work and, and help him to be faithful. We're just so thankful for him and the blessing that he is to so many of us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning. We pray that you would have your way in our hearts. We pray that Jesus would be glorified here among us and also as your people worship all across the world today, uh, would Christ be glorified. And Lord, uh, we love you, and it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.
you for the gift of Christ that you have sent your son to bear the penalty for our sin on the cross. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be reconciled to God and have eternal life with you. And Lord, we pray that this morning as we hear from your word, Lord, we pray that you would, that we would be encouraged through your spirit and through your truth. And God, we pray that you would help us to have open hearts to receive and understand your truth, Lord. And we pray also for your strength to help us live it out and to apply it to the way that we live, Lord. And we thank you for this opportunity to be together as we come to know you better and ultimately to love you more and love Christ more. We love you, Lord. We ask that you would be lifted up in our hearts this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I was reminded earlier that today is the birthday of both Charles Spurgeon and John MacArthur, uh, two men who've shaped my life from afar. Yet today is a day to honor my earthly dad, Jim Shera, who, with my mom, raised me and taught me, modeled character and loving acceptance of others, and lifelong faithfulness. Some of you, like me, had wonderful fathers, and you can say, praise God, and we know we take them for granted or took them for granted at times. But some of you do not. Some of you have longed for a dad that would simply tell you he loves you. My dad 
set an example to me early on for caring for those who didn't have living or active fathers in their life. And I praise God for that. And yet today, the Lord's Day, is a day to honor our loving Heavenly Father, of whom the best earthly fathers are but a dim reflection, nonetheless a reflection uh, of the image and glory of God. Today I have a message of comfort and hope for you. That God gives eternal comfort and good hope by grace. God gives eternal comfort and good hope by grace. And yet, comfort and hope are often the missing ingredient in many hearts, especially in men's hearts. Many Christian men that I speak with feel beat down, overloaded, overexpected, never quite measuring up. Older men wonder what their life has come to. Younger men wonder what their life will amount to. Men express their hearts. Some men will say, my wife doesn't think I'm a very good leader. Some men say, nearing the end of my career, I I don't know really what I've accomplished. Some will say, "I I thought by now that I would gain victory over certain sins. Some say I sit lonely at home wishing I had made more friends. Some men say they feel out of place and like no one notices them. And some ask for help. Some say, I have goals. Help me, help me know how to get there. Or I sincerely want to do something good for Christ and and the kingdom. I want to serve the Lord. Help me. Some will say, challenge me to be a godly man. And yet, so many live defeated, discouraged, even directionless, and many lack hope. Man, woman, boy, girl, many of our heart cries are very, very similar. In the passage before us today, God provides huge encouragement to his people. The eternal comfort and good hope by grace is what we see in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 to 17. Paul had already written to this church previously, just several months previous. His first letter began by thanking God for their life and, and that their, their work of faith and their labor of love and their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts the first letter that way. We have this triplet of faith, hope, and love, and, and you can trace it through the letter. And he's saying, you're doing well. You're doing well, keep going, excel still more. But by the time of the second letter, just a mere few months later, something seems to be missing. Something had changed. He had told them, comfort one another with these words about Christ's return. He had, he had told them the truth. He had said to encourage each other. And yet it seems 
that they had gotten worn down not only by the godless culture, but by false teachers that had infiltrated the church and had said to them, you missed the Lord's return. You are now in the day of the Lord's judgment. And so some of them were wavering in their faith. Some of them were confused. Some of them were, were shaken. In fact, he said, don't be quickly shaken. Don't be deceived. Some were wavering in their faith. And even in that context, you'd think they would be all on point. Some were wallowing in sin. And many, though, in the church, they just wanted to please the Lord. They just wanted to serve the Lord, like you. They wanted to do what is right. But I know some of you are wavering in your faith. Some of you are wallowing in sin. Many of you want to please the Lord. You want to do what is right. And you find at times that your hope seems to wear a bit, a bit thin. And so what he's doing here in this second letter, he thanks God and he says, your faith is growing. And he says, your love is increasing. But what's interesting as he's telling them, you're, you're, you're showing some, some good progress. It seems that he's reminding them of their hope that had begun to wane. You, what you could say is that 2 Thessalonians is about regaining steadfast hope, that you receive its comfort through grace, but that there's a measure of hope that's regained. That the church that once was characterized by faith, hope, and love needed to regain the comfort of hope. Augustine once said, there is no love without hope and no hope without love and neither love nor hope without faith. And they had gotten shaken up. Paul, he's teaching on the man of lawlessness. He's teaching on the Antichrist. He's teaching on all this judgment that's going to come and it'll be fierce and final and forever. And, and he gives it with a purpose. He didn't give it to crush them. He didn't give it to shake their faith. He didn't give it to alarm them. He wanted to point them to eternal comfort and good hope by grace so that they would abound in every good work and word. What a great way of saying that. Abound in every good work to please the Lord and serve his purposes and every good word comes out of our mouth the way we speak and teach. For you today, there's, there's for believers, believing friends, if you're a believer, God wants you to know that he's the one who gives eternal comfort and good hope by grace so that you would serve him, so that you would be reinvigorated to serve him, that you would not wane in hope, that you would not languish, that you would not feel like letting go or giving up, that you would, you would know that God gives you in Christ eternal comfort and good hope by grace. What we see in this passage as we work our way through it will be this. The first thing we're going to see is praise for God's providence in salvation. Verses 13 and 14. The second thing we're going to see is, is a plea to hold on to the promises of God. To, uh, a plea to personally hold on to God's promises in verse 15. As a response to his providence in salvation. 
And the third thing we'll see is a prayer for God's powerful working to complete the work he started in verses 16 and 17. So praise for God's providence in the first two verses, 13 and 14, a plea to personally hold on to God's promises, verse 15, and then a prayer. He's he's basically going to praise God for what he has done in saving. And then he's going to say, now here's how you should respond, believer, and then now let's pray for God to bring this all the way to completion. Pray for his power to be seen in action. And that's in verses 16 and 17. We're only going to look at the first two verses today. This fair warning, okay? We're going to get to two verses today. Subsequent weeks, we'll we'll continue uh, moving through this passage. The first thing I want you to notice, this thing we're going to look at today, is that he gives praise to God for his providence in salvation, his providing salvation, because he wants the beloved to know, he wants Christians to know they have eternal comfort and good hope by grace. They didn't earn it. They don't deserve it. They can't work themselves up for it. It's from God. And it's interesting what he's doing here. Just like he's, he had pointed out some specific elements Uh, in the character of the Antichrist in verses 10 through 12, now he's going to show there's some characteristics of what it means to be saved. Here's some characteristics of someone that God has given eternal comfort and good hope by grace to. Verse 13 begins, but we ought. We We owe you a debt. We are morally obligated to give thanks to God. We must do it. We owe, we ought to always give thanks to God for you. This is, they're morally obligated to thank God, to praise God. They have grateful hearts. They're dependent on God. They're not, you know, swimming in selfish ideas. They're just, they're just saying, we, we need to praise God. Why? First thing he says about believers is because you're beloved by the Lord. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. They're dearly and eternally loved. We, we hear about identity now ad nauseum. And here, if you're a Christian, here's your identity. Here's the identity that you need to know so that when you are tempted to dabble in, in other identities that are not rooted in Scripture, these would, would bolster your soul. These would give strength to your heart, that these would be what, what are the boundary markers of who you are. Beloved by the Lord. That's the first thing we see about believers. Believers are beloved by the Lord. They're dearly and eternally loved. It's, and it's not, this is not a, a generic, general kind of love from Christ. This is sovereign choosing love. Because the second thing we see about believers is they're chosen decisively by the Lord. He says, beloved brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. The first thing he says, you're beloved, and God chose you. You've been chosen decisively by God Almighty, and, and you're now in a continuing state of being that's eternal because He chose you. You're elect. He chose you for himself. And he says he chose you, and the ESV puts it this way, as the first fruits. 
It's really interesting because of Old Testament significance to that phrase. It means to be set apart to God's service, to be dedicated to God. But there's a better translation of that. And, and if you look at the Greek words, you're like, whoa, this is kind of confusing. As the first fruits is, this, is these two words, and then, and then there's the, the better translation, it's just putting those two words together, and it's, it's a different meaning. It's in the beginning. That's the better translation of the next phrase. Because God chose you in the beginning, or from the beginning. That's better than first fruits, and here's why. Because the idea of from the beginning, God chose, choosing you from, from the beginning, it gives both ideas of first fruits and the idea of God's pretemporal, you know, before time choosing of believers. So there's a dedication to God, and this then explains the eternal decrees of God, the aspect of God's choosing. God chose them to be saved. That's what he says. In fact, that's what he told them in the first letter. He goes, you know, your life is such, we love hanging out with you Thessalonians. You, your testimony is strong, and we know God has chosen you. It's like when you are around loved ones in Christ, and you go, wow, God is changing you. You really are a believer. Praise God, I see fruit of the Spirit of God in your life. And and Paul is so thankful here, he's praising God. He's saying, God chose you to be saved from the beginning. That's election, that's before time. God chose some to believe the truth and be delivered from the delusion and the divine judgment that will come upon those who reject Christ. And he's rejoicing. He's saying, I'm looking forward to the salvation of everyone in Christ. Drastically different from those awaiting hell. Absolutely diametrically opposed destinies. He calls them beloved. He calls them chosen. Right after he says that there will be those who are condemned, who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You notice the contrast right away, and you'll notice that he's angling towards this, and he's saying to them, I am praising God because he did this. He chose you. He, the Bible word is elected you. He adopted you. There's another Bible word for you. Uh, he's saying, your brethren, your brothers, you're, you're chosen, you're beloved, your sons and daughters of God, God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit chose you. He's speaking of God's sovereign, active appointing of people to eternal life, as Ephesians 1 speaks of. It was planned in Christ before the foundation of the world, and he is very confident that they were chosen due to their changed lives. A true knowledge of God in Christ will will eventuate into a changed life that you can observe and watch and rejoice in. In fact, in Ephesians, it speaks of being made holy and blameless. Most of us are like, that's not me. Well, let's see what it means. Holy describes moral purity. God wants you to walk in a way that is pure. But blameless expresses the freedom from sin and guilt that God grants to the believer. 
freed from the power and the penalty of sin in Christ. That's your identity, believer. In Deuteronomy 26, you saw shadows and a reflection of the glory that would be coming where God declares to his people, says, the Lord declares today you are a people for his treasured possession. As he has promised, Peter echoes it. We are a people for his own possession. So believers are beloved. They are chosen to be saved. Notice it says to be saved. Believers are saved eternally by the Lord. This is God's work that you've been chosen, sovereignly loved before the world began, and, and you have, never to gloat, never to be proud or prideful of, you have what those who refuse to love the truth lack. And you know you don't deserve it, but you're, you've been granted this by God. I say this often, but true believers aren't proud, and when they do become proud, they are convicted by the Holy Spirit, and they repent, and, and they become humble again. Chosen, loved, to be saved. There's this future deliverance from the doom to fall on the lost at Christ's return, and, but there's present benefits. You're, they're in the realm of being saved. It's not like, oh, one day you'll get this. You have it, and, and, and it's, you're growing in it, and you will have it forever. Eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Believers also are said to be sanctified. You'll notice it says to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So the believers, here's another identity of believers. This is wrapped up in your identity as a believer. You are sanctified by the Lord. You're being sanctified progressively by the Lord. Through sanctification by the Spirit is a process as you are believing the truth. That God's choice of you before the foundation of the world results in belief in the truth and the Spirit of God's sanctifying work in your life. We see the role of the Spirit all through Scripture. It's very clear that the Spirit sanctifies by the Word, uses the Word to sanctify believers. But the Word of God is at work in those who believe. And the role of the Spirit, even as Romans 15, 16 says, sanctification by the Spirit. Same words as right here. And belief in the truth means you believe and continue on. It's the means by which you believe, begin, and continue on in salvation. You believe the gospel and you continue on in Christ. We're seeing that the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son are doing it all. The triune God is doing it all. Like, if you're a believer, you believe in a triune God. The Father sovereignly chooses you. The Son secures you. The Spirit sanctifies you. This is the identity of a believer. And Paul is praising God for it. Paul is rejoicing in this. And then he tells us what we're waiting for. How did this all come about in real time? Some of you got saved 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, two weeks ago. God knows. You should know when you came to faith in Christ. Verse 14 tells us how it came about in real time that believers are called by the Lord through gospel preaching. 
Now, that's all some people know because they never open up their Bible and read these other verses that explain what happened. They're like, well, I heard the gospel and I believed it. Wonderful. Have you ever looked in the Bible to see how God explains it? And here's how God's explaining it. Here's how it comes about in real time. Verse 14, to this, and he's referring to what he just said in verse 13, to this salvation and this sanctification through the Spirit of God, he called you through our gospel, the personal touch, our gospel. Someone preached the gospel to them. Paul and his friends preached the gospel to them. Who preached the gospel to you? Do you remember? Can you go back and look and think and remember who first preached the gospel to you? I remember when I was in college, there were some fellow students that were trying to preach the gospel to me. I would run away from them. I didn't want the, their brand of what, they were like all putting Bibles in my face and going, look, 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 you know, which throne are you on or whatever, you know, and I'm like, This explains what God does. He calls his people that he chose before the foundation of the world by the preaching of the gospel. That's what it says. To this salvation and sanctification, and he's using believed and received and welcomed truth of Christ crucified and buried and risen and returning. And he's using this truth, and he calls you through as Paul put it, our gospel, personal touch. God fulfills his foreordained purpose by calling the chosen to salvation via the good news of divine truth conveyed through preaching. God uses the foolish, here's how, here's how Paul put it, God uses the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That's the means by which God calls at a point in time. And any of you who are believers, there was a moment, there was a period of time, there was a, a season, whatever it was, you were hearing the gospel, and instead of pushing it away, you believed it. Some of you don't remember ever pushing it away because maybe you came to faith so young. Praise God. Some of you, like myself, you remember not believing it. And maybe everyone going, well, you seem like a good kid, but I, know, I knew the difference. I knew if I believed it or not. Why was I running away from people trying to share the gospel with me? Because I didn't want that. But there was a moment in time when it all made sense. There was a season of my life when it all made sense. But what about you? Have you, have you been called by the gospel and did you respond? And, and you go, you, let's, do a little, uh, let's do a little survey about this. How'd that, how'd that go in the New Testament? Like, Maybe when it first started. Maybe like Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up boldly and authoritatively preaching the word of God. What a, a beautiful moment in time. Look at Acts chapter 2. Peter gets, stands up boldly, authoritatively, and he, he takes the word of God and explains it to the people. It's Christ-centered. It's, it's heart-piercing. They, they, were, they were beside themselves, those that would believe. And then there were those that were angry about it. In Acts 2, around about verse 23, to be exact, he says, This Jesus, 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. He's talking to the people who collectively crucified Christ and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he, he goes on. And he says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You know what he's saying to them? Jesus is God. God promised to send a deliverer. God promised to send the servant that would do his, his will. This is who he sent, and this is what he did and they respond this way. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted of their sin. They were, they were pierced in their hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replies, repent. He had just told them the gospel. He just explained it to them. He says, repent, turn from your sins. Now, you, you, you might say, well, I don't see anywhere where it says believe. He's telling them they need to believe, okay? Every time the gospel is preached and it's recorded in scripture, sometimes it'll say like Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And you're like, I want to do that one so I don't have to repent of my sins. Sorry. Every time it says believe in the Lord, it's it's assuming you're going to repent of your sins. And he says repent, assumes you believe in the Lord that you just heard about. And of course, he says to them, be baptized. Not to get forgiven of your sins, but because of the forgiveness of your sins. And he says, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, some churches are teaching wrongly, saying, oh, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit is a, uh, a, a secondary thing you need to, to get, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's absolutely false. That's not from the Bible. What he's telling them is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you have all of God, one God, in three persons from the moment you believe. Not slicing and dicing and twisting the scriptures. And then he goes on. Verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself. Those he chose and in a moment in time called by the preaching of the gospel. I hope that you have responded to the gospel message. I hope that you are one who has believed in the Lord Jesus and are saved. If you are not sure, but this is really clear, believe in the Lord Jesus. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ. Believe that he died on, on, on the cross in your place for your sins. We call him our substitute because he took our place and took the punishment we deserved. And believe in him. Trust your soul to him. Most likely, by this time in your life, you've already figured it out. I will not be able to do this on my own. I can't make myself good enough. You've got to believe in the Lord Jesus. Now, the next thing that Paul says blows us away. He said that they're called through the gospel for a purpose. Verse 14. That you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Wow. Obtain means to have a acquired possession that is God-given, that has been granted. Literally, share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ that all who God adopts into his family that he chose from before the foundation of the world will participate in Christ's glory at his coming, as, as it says in, in, in chapter 1, verse 10, that he will come and be gloried in his saints, glorified in his saints. God grants it to his purchased possessions. We don't earn it. We're saved from sin. And what happens is our life begins to be changed by the Spirit through the Word to display gospel glory. You might not feel very reflective of that glory at times, but we're called in Scripture the Holy Ones. There's your identity. God makes you that way, and he's conforming every one of his chosen ones that he has called by the gospel into the image of Christ. He's told them in the first letter, in the fifth chapter, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, chosen from, for salvation from eternity past, and set apart from sin by the Spirit of God, and called to eternal glory, to share the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you receive the gospel, you become sharers in Christ's glory. And the glory has already been manifested in part. In John 1, it says, We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But the fullness of glory is yet to be seen, yet to appear. It was very clear the identity of a Christian is that you're destined for glory, not judgment, not, not destruction. You will not be with those who are, have been deceived and judged, will be judged in that day. You can rest assured that he is being, he's reminding them, praising God and reminding them, you're chosen, you're loved. You were, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. You were called by the gospel. God brought the dead to life in, in regeneration. This is what the Bible says. John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, I chose you. But you're like, ah, but I chose to follow Jesus. Humanly speaking, that's a way we explain it. Of course, yes, you want to. But this is explaining what God did before you knew what was happening. He's thankful for God's gift of salvation and deliverance. And what he's emphasizing here is God's part in the total salvation process. God saves alone. He doesn't use you to save yourself. Now, the response of the saved, verse 15, we'll get to that next week. But verses 13 and 14 is devoted solely to what God has done. And what do we do? We praise him for it. Some people want to fight God for it. Like, you really want to be in control? Thomas Watson said, praise is a soul in flower. It's just beautiful to praise God. John Boys, a Puritan, said, the servants of the Lord are to sing his praises in this life to the world's end, and in the next life, world without end. John Livingstone said, alas, for that capital crime of the Lord's people, barrenness in praises. Oh, how fully I am persuaded that an hour of praises is worth a day of fasting and mourning. Of course, we do hear about identity ad nauseum. And if you're a Christian, your identity is rooted in Christ. You would love Christ. There's your identity, Christ. 
Puritan John Flavel once said this, some providences like Hebrew letters must be read backwards. For many of us, it's a mystery, but when we open up our Bibles, we realize how God saves and what he did, and it just makes us more awestruck at his wonderful greatness in choosing to save us and wanting to save us and planning to save us and actually saving us and keeping us and preserving us and and promising to continue us to the end and that we would be with him forever. Sometimes we get a little messed up in our words. Sometimes we need to change our terms and not change the Bible. We need to keep the Bible terms intact. We're not 100% consistent on that, but we need to strive. We need to know that if you believe in Jesus today, you don't believe in Christ in a determinative way like you figured out your destiny, but in a responsive way because God called you by the gospel because he had chosen you because you're beloved of him. He chose to set his love upon you before you ever existed because he knew that in Christ he would save you and choose to not relate to you any longer on the basis of your sin, but on Christ's shed blood and his righteousness. All by God's grace, eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Sometimes I hear of people who like to proclaim to other people uh, that they don't believe this. And it makes me sad. I think, why would someone not want to believe this? I, I even hear people at Grace, of course, always second or third hand. They're telling people, they're proclaiming to people kind of proudly, I don't believe that. And it always saddens me. I always think they're missing out on, on so much. And, and I'm not saying that everyone gets this right away, that everyone understands it right away. You know, you know what it depends on largely? What kind of teaching you've received and how much you've read the Bible for yourself. A lot of people just take what they've been taught over the years and they never went back and looked at it in the Bible. It's astounding to me how many Christians have never read the Bible through all the way through. And not to go where you, oh, I did it once, boom, I checked that off. Your whole life is wrapped up in the Bible, Christian. If you, if you need to be reading it all the way through over and over and over again your whole life. Like, wh- why are you relying upon what other people have said about it? And you're getting your ideas that way. You need to go check for yourself. And to me, it's astounding. How many professing Christians live without assurance of their salvation because they've never gone and checked about it for themselves and they think it all depends on them? And the Bible is clear in the terms of the order of salvation. It's regeneration first. God makes the dead to live and then repentance and faith. Look at it in John 1, in Ephesians 2, in 1 Peter 1, in Titus 3, in 2 Thessalonians 2, where we're at right now. It's clear as day if you just read the Bible. And I like to would say this, if, if you think that you're a, a link in the golden chain of redemption it's going to break because you're the weakest link and no one, no human can determine their destiny. If one of the links is that weak and it's you or me, there's no eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Nothing can change God's decree. God does the saving. Peter puts it this way, we have an inheritance laid up for us in heaven. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. If it was up to you and me, 
that wouldn't be the case. And I would just say, you might not see it right away, but open up your Bible, read it plainly. There's no way around it. Here's what you need to settle. Will I go with what the Bible says or with what my mind tells me? Do you realize how many things our minds tell us about end times things and about the way God works and about this, that, and the other? I want to go with the mind of Christ. I want to go with what the Bible says. You have to trust God's word. You have to look to God's word. You have to match up what you hear with what God's word says. And I want you to note this. God's word says that you're to be a member of a church under elders and teachers that rightly divide the word. And if you're in a church where elders and teachers are committed to proclaiming God's truth based on the actual words of Scripture and the context of Scripture and based on authorial intent, what did God mean? Do you lean into that leadership and that teaching all the while matching it up with what is written in the word? If you see gaps, if you see confusing things, if you see seeming incongruities between what is written in the word and what is taught by your leaders committed to God's truth, then lovingly and gently and respectfully ask about it, inquire about it, wrestle together with your leaders who love you to accurately see what God says. We're not saying, by the way, I'm not saying I know it all. I'm not saying that our elders know it all. I'm saying that I'm not, I'm not saying we're perfectly correct in everything we say or, or teach, but we strive to handle the word of God faithfully and accurately and for God's glory. You want to be aligned with the sovereign God who saves. We're going to stop there today. We're going to just go ahead and stop there, and uh, we'll pick up these other verses in subsequent weeks, okay? It, remember this, though. Praise God for his providence and salvation. Now, we look into verse 15. We'll get into that next week. It's a plea to personally hold on to God's promises. We'll get into that next week. And remember that it's, it's, it ends with a prayer for God's power. Uh, in fact, just look at verse 16 real briefly with me. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. just want to mention that now 20-some years or so after Jesus rises from the dead, you have the Father and the Son being listed as God. Okay? Uh, the Trinity was very clear. The triune God was very clear. The Spirit of God had him write these words down. But I want to mention something because it says God our Father. It's Father's Day today. It's the Lord's Day today, but it's Father's Day today too. Charles Spurgeon preached on September 12, 1858 this, on that phrase, our Father who art in heaven from the Lord's Prayer. He said, here is sonship. Here is sonship, our Father who art in heaven. He says, how are we to understand this, and in what sense are we sons and daughters of God? Some say that the fatherhood of God is universal, and that every person, from the fact of their being created by God, is necessarily God's son or daughter, and that every person has a right to approach the throne of God and say, our Father who art in heaven. And Spurgeon said, to that I will disagree. His word was demur. I believe, he says, that in this prayer we are to come before God looking upon him not as our father through creation, but as our father through adoption and the new birth. Our father through adoption and the new birth. Thomas Watson said this, a man adopts one for his son and heir that does not at all resemble him. Whosoever God adopts for his child is like him. He not only bears his heavenly father's name, but his image. His image. 
believer. If you're a believer today, beloved friends, you have an identity and it is rooted in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ as the Spirit of God impresses these truths upon your hearts. Lord, we thank you and praise you that this passage would invigorate our hearts such that we would want to praise you for what you have done. Praise you, Lord, that because you are steadfast, we can be steadfast in life, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our careers, in our future, all in your hands. We thank you, Lord, that you, on a day where we want to honor fathers, you know every feeling that runs the gamut of extreme love and thankfulness to grief and shame, to regret, to rejoicing, that some have had good fathers, some have had bad dads, and some fathers are living with regrets, some are even currently bad dads, and some of us feel like bad kids at times. But I thank you, Lord, that you are a heavenly father that loves us eternally and fiercely and finally and forever that you don't label us as bad but that you give us a new identity that we are loved that we are chosen that we are saved that we are being sanctified that we will be glorified with you we praise you we love you we thank you that you give us eternal comfort and good hope rooted in your sovereign grace thank you lord that your love holds it all together we pray in jesus name amen Amen. If you're able, please stand and we'll close and sing you in Cornerstone together. <clears throat> My hope is built. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not try
shall come. When he shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone. Flawless I was a kid, there was a, a little boy that went to the church I grew up in. I was just thinking about this this morning. His name was Chris, and he was in a wheelchair, and he wasn't going to get out of that wheelchair. He had a physical ailment such that he wasn't going to be walking in his life. And he lived with his mom and his grandma. And I just remember my dad uh, faithfully and and consistently going out of his way to include that little boy, Chris, uh, into things. And uh, he had a tender spot in his heart for those who didn't have dads either alive or present. And I just want to encourage you, on a day like this, I know some of you dads want to bask in the glory of being a wonderful dad. Praise God. But, but maybe reach out just a little bit um, in a significant way to someone who doesn't have a dad or has lost their dad or doesn't have a dad who's present. And uh, for the dads, we do want to honor the dads and the grads. And so we have Christ-centered books for you. There's four different ones the dads get to choose from out there. And then grads, you get this book. It will cost you everything. It's free for you today, though, okay? <laughs> and candy bars, full-size candy bars for the dads, all right? And uh, unless he thinks I forgot him, one of our staff members, Matthew Ma, it's his birthday today. Uh, which is more important than John MacArthur's and, and Charles Spurgeon's, to me at least. All right, happy birthday. All right, let's uh, close with these words. Therefore, beloved, Second Peter 3, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me in